You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. My name is Cecilia Mazeka, and I'm the head of digital communications for Asia for McKinsey based in Singapore. Governments all over the world are operating in an increasingly complex environment. They face macroeconomic uncertainty, constrained budgets, rapid social and technological change. The private sector's response to customer demands has also raised public expectations for government services. In this context, what should governments focus on prioritizing and getting right? Today, I'm speaking to Andrew Grant, a global board member of McKinsey and leader of our public sector practice globally. We're joined by Diane Yilin, who goes by DY, managing partner of McKinsey's Singapore office and a leader in our public sector and infrastructure practices in Asia. And we're delighted to have with us a new colleague, Biana Cordon, who's joined McKinsey as the global director of the McKinsey Center for Government, based in Copenhagen. Prior to McKinsey, Bianca was the former finance minister of Denmark from 2011 to 2015. Everyone, welcome to this conversation. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Andrew, what's the answer to that question? What should governments be focusing on in terms of priorities and what they should get right? At its simplest, what governments should be focusing on is what citizens want. Uh, and the interesting evidence around that, I mean, obviously, at one level, that's a very trite answer. But where we think there's an interesting layer to that is that increasingly there do seem to be a set of outcomes that citizens increasingly care about. And those outcomes actually require departments and agencies to work together in ways that they've never done before. So increasingly, we're actually finding governments set a smaller number of very meaningful outcomes that citizens want. Uh, and they end up being things like reducing street crime. They end up being things like uh, increasing participation in early childhood education. They end up being things like the number of 20 to 30-year-olds that have advanced vocational skills. So we find that that's increasingly where we're seeing government's focus. A big thing that governments have to get right and get right at the outset is that, well, Quite simply, digital is not just about digital. It, it's, it's, it's integral to, to every discussion you have on major policy issues. And I guess that that's the point you're making as well, Andrew, that just like big corporations, you, you can't just put digital in a corner of, of government activity and leave that to, to tech-savvy department. You have to integrate it with the main purposes of, of, of government, and you have to put the muscle of, of a bigger purpose behind it to actually drive it through. I think one point to raise here, uh, Cecilia, is what you use the word prioritize. Governments struggle with that tremendously because it implies trade-offs have to be made. Mm. While it's easy to identify a long list of things that governments want to do, be it because fiscally they have to or because citizens want them to, the challenge is often what do they not do? And in some of the work that we've done with governments, we've actually organized workshops and using data, actual data, be it what citizens want based on polls, based on analysis of what uh, civil servants are saying are some of the biggest issues. And usually getting that list is pretty straightforward, but the most difficult is getting a cabinet together mm. and for them to actually say, at what point do we say this is no longer a priority? Or is this a priority maybe for later? 
Andrew, is it hard to say no? Absolutely, and certainly in, in a modern democ- democracy, when there are more voices and from more you know parts of society and the political spectrum. Um, but again, I, I do think, um, again, a little bit bringing together Biane and DY's point that we do think there are some, because it, it's very hard for a government, to some extent you're squeezed, you've got more things that you have to deal with, your fiscal envelope, you know, there's no, there's not a lot more money to be able to, to address that with. But there are a few things, a few opportunities that we see to actually resolve that. So call them breakthroughs, call them pathways through. Biane was talking about digital. Digital is absolutely one of them. And the interesting thing where, for that's a huge opportunity for government, it's also a challenge in the sense if you went back 10, 15 years, for most citizens, their expectations of a department, of an agency, were another government department or another agency. Today, their expectations their expectations are driven by the private sector. They're driven by their digital experience with a bank, with their mobile phone provider, with their pay TV subscriber. What are some of the ways that you're seeing to be effective at how governments can better manage their fiscal stability? One little insight that we've seen from from several countries that have have done this quite well is that, again, if, if you're a consumer company, historically, if you were a customer of mine, I used to look at you in terms of how much... Uh, how productive my relationship with you was over a one-year period. Increasingly, what world-class consumer companies do is they look at the value of a customer over a lifetime. Essentially, what is the value of that customer journey, that customer experience over the whole time of the relationship? Believe it or not, governments have never done that. They've always looked at you, Cecilia, what's the nature of my relationship over the last year? A number of governments are now starting to truly look at you as a citizen over a lifetime. And where that's meaningful in a fiscal sense is where, to DY's point, we're getting a much sharper view of priorities. So, for example, if I take youth unemployment, if I look at youth unemployment on the one-year view, youth unemployment is issue number 10, 11, 12, but it's in the double digits. If I look at youth unemployment from a a lifetime perspective, it is the worst issue for a government because what happens to a young person early in life stimulates a whole lot of other negative things right throughout a lifetime. And for many governments in US dollar terms, the cost of a young person being unemployed to a government is north of a million and a half US dollars over a lifetime. So I think one of the really meaningful things we've seen as a development is this moving from, many people call it the investment approach rather than the fiscal approach, but really taking a lifetime view of a citizen and setting priorities on that basis, not just a one-year view. Moving from the one-year view to to life cycle kind of perspective, you also tend to link different sectorial views on, on, on citizens. So you don't just have Cecilia, uh, the mother, Cecilia, the, the, the daughter of, of, of parents that need to care for the elderly, or you, you tend to combine these sexual views in a, in a whole of government approach to what citizens need during their life cycle. And that really, that takes a completely new approach for many governments that tended to be one-year focused, one-year budget focused. One of the quite confronting things that we're seeing is many policy interventions actually don't have the impact that they aspire to do. In fact, one of the really challenging things for modern governments and modern societies is that increasingly our citizens' lives are becoming path-dependent on the socioeconomic outcomes that they're born with. And the effectiveness of many of the interventions we used to make that would help people you know, rise socially, that would get better jobs, would rise up the socioeconomic ladder, and 
those um, historic tools are not proving to be anywhere near as effective as they as they used to be. So we're seeing from a fiscal perspective, another lens that's being brought is much richer data to really help us have a hard-nosed view of what interventions really work and what ones are, are not. And I think most governments are really taking that very seriously, saying for the next era, we have to get that right. And some of the old instruments like, well, income transfers or well, schemes that guarantee people against an unemployment on, on an income basis is not going to do the trick to create uh, equal terms for, for, for citizens in a modern democracy. They'll have to, well, we'll have to focus on education, on the building of skills and do that in a much more sophisticated way than what we've seen up till now. Mm -hmm. DY, what are you seeing in terms of how governments are responding to any disruptions in the way they develop youth or create employment? I think taking Singapore is a very good example of a country that has, um, you know, paid attention to the mega trends uh, well. Um, it's a well-known fact that in 2016, they're undergoing two very large uh, programs. One, the Change for Future Economy, uh, which means they are relooking entirely at the structure of the economy, relooking at what are some of the sectors and industries and markets that they need to be focused on that will set Singapore up for the next 50 years. And many of the mega trends play into this, right? Singapore is a small country. It doesn't have a lot of land. And so what will the trends around automation, technology, uh, and aging population mean for a country in terms of which sectors they now need to invest in that will drive the future growth uh, of, of the economy? That's one leg. The second leg that they're looking at is, uh, as Bjarne was talking around, skills. A uh, big program which has been put into place uh, at the beginning of uh, this year called Future Skills, um, what the government has done is to ensure that every single uh, Singapore citizen has a future skills account. Mm -hmm. A certain amount of money is put into that account every year, and that money can be used towards reskilling um, an individual for the rest of their lives. And I think that rest of their lives is very important because many of the skills that need to be built will have to be built as adults, and they will have to evolve through that adult's uh, life. And many of the skills that they will have to learn will be tied to these mega trends. How do I take advantage of these new technologies? How do I skill myself to be able uh, to participate in the new sectors and, and, and industries that the country is, is moving towards, right? The other thing that is confronting governments when they look at these challenges, one is the actual people that populate their civil service. They're really finding that, like like all of us, I mean, across the economy, that there are new skills, there are new capabilities, and the pace of change is like we've never seen before. We would argue that that's more acute in the public sector than it is the private sector in terms of the degree of change. There's really a combination of of, of pace and then the and then the very broad range of of disruptive potential that you have in place. You have well, a number of technologies that might all disrupt what we know today as as at the way the, the labor market works and the way the economy works, the way corporations work, and the way governments work. So at least in, in my view, you're also at a, at a genuine breaking point. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think what you spoke about, Andrew, about uh, government being in, in, in a really under a heavy pressure on the issue of talent, I think mm -hmm. it's what strikes me when I visit uh, different nations, very different nations, is 
this is a general feature. It's 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 felt everywhere in in very different uh, contexts and geographies. And I guess we basically are able to identify a paradox because government gets drained and, and pressured on talent while actually moving into the center of things. What, what governments do and what they have to do and whether they succeed in doing it is becoming more and not less important mm. to, to, to the well, next level of society and to, to cope with the changes yeah. we're discussing here today. In our conversations with governments, we know that they never used to spend a huge amount of time thinking about strategy. They used to plan, they used to budget, but mm. I think we're seeing, I think amongst us, the rise of the, the role of strategy, right? Yeah. Singapore is a very good example. They're now thinking about what is the strategy of this of my country to be competitive in yeah. the future. So, and they've developed, of course, a, a strategy group within the Prime Minister's office. So I think strategy is one that we see. To every meeting we've all had, the term data analytics comes up within the first minute and a half, right? And I think uh, what we've, at least I've seen, is governments approach this at two levels. Number one, I need a core, call it almost a super data analytics team, maybe at the center, right? And that's something that will deal with my big, complex kind of problems across government. But I actually need to put data analytics the same way I need to put things like project management or problem solving into the curriculum of the yeah. new civil service. That's become the norm, right? So Excel isn't going to cut it anymore, no. right? For my, my analytical abilities, I'm going to have to up that. I think data analytics is is uh, the second. The third, which I think at least I'd never really seen a couple of years ago, but the language around change management and transformation, which used to be a very private sector kind of language or very private sector uh, term, is you know infusing into government today. Right? They're very aware of the acute need to, you know, get the civil service and often the citizens and the civil service to do things differently. Mm. Right? Be it the way I interact with government or the way I communicate with my citizens and the way civil servants work mm. as well. We have to remember that historically most government activity has been about stability mm. and about well, the, to prevent change and to, to prevent disruption in, in, in ways that couldn't be predicted or handled. Yeah. Uh, that's really in, in, in the key mindset of, of, of many civil services around the world. So to move into into a, a more corporate-like but but still distinct mm-hmm. uh, way of, of focusing on change and the delivery of, of transformation uh, end to end really requires a new skill set mm-hmm. but also a new mindset. Yeah. Uh, and some governments are able to set up change machineries or, yeah. or uh, an apparatus for coordination that en- enables them to do that to actually well focus on new priorities uh, and and get them. Well, let this change, change machinery work to, to, that, to that benefit and to implement it uh, right to the, the level of, of citizen impact, and others don't. And, uh, and I guess comparing the ability of governments to do that uh, is going to be a really important focus area in the near future. Picking up on this change management point, that increasingly for governments, the notion of metabolic rate mm. is really important. The pace at which they're able to do things, listen to citizens, incorporate views, prioritise, etc. 
And Biani, one of the things that we were very impressed with you, I mean, I think you had the, the term frenzied reform or, uh, or some frenzy, reform yeah. frenzy, yeah. But, but, but certainly your time was characterised by a pace of reform, a pace of change, a metabolic rate that certainly we think was quite distinct vis-a-vis other governments. And I think getting this metabolic rate right is, is critical. I'd be interested in I mean, your thoughts on what did you do, what did the government you were in do that actually helped enable that demonstrable yeah. change in the metabolic yeah, rate. There's a few points to 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 pick on there. Uh, I think you're right that we we managed to to have a four year period or even a longer period of reform frenzy in Denmark, basically as a reaction to economic crisis mm. and to the financial crisis in, in in Europe and to the bust of the housing bubble. But I think we also managed to install uh, institutional change that will uh, empower a, a longer period of, of reform frenzy and actually trying to turn that into a new normal uh, of, of, of the way you do policy making in a small advanced economy. And I, on a very general level, we tried to introduce the idea that this was really the precondition for the social mod- model that dominates Denmark. You, you can't have a model that regulated, uh, that solidaric, with, with that level of government interference in the economy, but also a very open economy, open to competitive pressure from, from the outside. You can't have that without a, a very high level of reform and constant change uh, to, to optimize uh, the delivery of government services and, and the way you spend tax dollars uh, in, in an optimized and ever-changing way. Uh, so uh, we, we try to install change permanently in the framework we built for, for economic reform and economic governments and, and try to identify the key structural aspects of the economy that had to move forward gradually. Is agility a trait that governments can learn or is it like leadership it has to be born? Absolutely, agility can be learned and we're seeing you know, people learn it. I think it's also important that we're not saying that make everything agile. There is this notion of the two-speed. There are some things you very much want to be stable and have to be stable, but you do need to learn the agile skill. I also think that you know, some governments have learned the hard way that digital for governments is not just about porting what works in the private sector across. And one thing, for example, again, that Biane's government got really right that I think is an undertold important plank of digital and that is citizens need to have a cyber secure digital identity that is them. And because of the levels of trust in Denmark to some extent because of the history of identity cards that was actually quite straightforward to make that happen. Many governments are wrestling with that in an enormous way around data privacy issues, around how you provide symmetry with citizens. And I think there are now some examples. I mean, New Zealand, for example, I think is quite an interesting example of a place that uh, has historically been very nervous about data privacy issues, et cetera, which has created a whole new conversation around what they call your real me digital identity. Mm. To be agile, you need to have some things that really work and are very clear. And a cyber-secure digital identity is fundamental to enabling agile. And many governments are getting stuck around that way in a way that the Danes solve very, very well. And I think even you know, sort of other countries are now starting to, to, to find ways through that. But a number of countries, unfortunately, have got quite stuck. I would challenge that a little bit, Andrew, because I think while governments... Oh, he can take it. You can do it. <laughs> while governments, I think, can learn to be agile, I don't think it's an easy lesson to learn, right? Yeah. And so 
I think they're going to have to do uh, more than just, you know, try a little harder, try a little faster, right? And we're seeing now governments being much more open to injecting new talent earlier into yeah. the into the system, you know, fresh talent from industry into the mid-levels, and in some occasions at more senior levels. And I think they are going to have to adapt and adopt some of these kind of HR practices because without some element of fresh blood, you know, injections of fresh ideas of new ways to do things, I'm not convinced that, you know, agility will come easily. No, right. but, but still you have to recognize that I, I think many governments governments underestimate the, the risk of not going agile. Mm. I, in, in many ways, that's a low risk option yeah. if you compare it to, to well, the full the full consequences of of, of a waterfall approach Correct. that can end up getting you stuck in ways that you just you just can't foresee the consequences of. And, and I think, yeah. at least in the Danish example you were, you were, you were, uh, we were discussing just a moment ago, they found that they were the consequences of of, of not being agile. Oh, yeah, that that really scared them, uh, and that that in economic terms, but also, uh, well, in the consequences for Danish businesses uh, yeah. in the way they operated. Yeah. So better that you innovate yourself before someone else comes in exactly. and takes you out. Two things I think that are forcing governments to be agile. One is that the private sector is really now setting the benchmark in a way that they didn't used to. Also some quite interesting research that McKinsey has done when you look at citizen reactions to interacting with digital. If you can create a digital citizen experience for a citizen, they have the highest satisfaction levels. If you have a citizen where you embark on a digital journey, but then at some point in the journey they have to go back to the old way, you get the lower scores and actually scores lower than you had in the old world. So the stakes around, to Bjarne's point, the stakes around getting it right have now become very, very high indeed. And unfortunately, or fortunately, governments are now, they've lit the fuse. Andrew, D.Y. and Bjarne, thank you for joining us today, and thanks for listening to our conversation. If you'd like to find out more about the work that we do in the public sector and at the McKinsey Center for Government, head over to mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.